Welcome to 801 Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage. Tonight in the pod bar, we have Herman, John, and me, Jen. If you remember from our previous episode's last call, we welcomed Eli Carnahan. When does a work being a classic stop excusing its content? So in my organization, which I think Eli uh, talked briefly about um, in his actual last call, this is a really timely topic and one that keeps kind of coming back around and around in a committee we serve on where we're choosing the season. Um, Right now we're choosing 2023, 2024. And the charge of the committee is to to do certain types of work that challenge the canon. Um, And so, but we take submissions from basically anyone across the university, predominantly, of course, those those submissions come come from within the school. Um, And so we do take submissions that sometimes would be considered a classic. And we read every submission, we read every script and, and it results in conversation and a lot of times the conversations are a little bit cyclical, like this is a classic, but it has A, B, and C, which is problematic content. And I think that is most acute in musical theater. Um, so I think that's why Eli, like this is a great topic for Eli and I specifically to talk about, um, but I also suspect it's happening not just in educational institutions, but as anyone chooses to produce any, any production. Yeah, it, it's the same conversation in my organization, and and there's so many different types of problematic content uh, that at the time they were written, right, wrong, or otherwise, it was culturally accepted. Particularly for graduate students who are expected to know the history of costume, architecture, and decor from a Western standpoint. I don't want to teach a Western viewpoint, so how do I how do I graduate them with the knowledge that they're expected to have, but also be teaching what I want to teach them. And eventually I just had to abandon the idea that there was an expectation of what they should know. Um, And I think that's a little bit the call of this moment is like the expectation that you know certain language, certain pieces of the canon, certain playwrights from the canon. The canon is based on one viewpoint in the world, right? It raises white male voices, period. End of story. I, I would also add that, you know, some, some of the content uh, can be uncomfortable and sometimes that's okay for theater. Uh, you know, it, it's a per show, per organization sort of choice. And I think it's a big responsibility on season selection, season planning, however you want to put it, uh, to ensure that the students of, of all types in our, in my organization, we have a lot of different uh, representation and we just invited students into the room this year Um and have a similar process to what what it sounds like your organization, Jen, has. Um, Now, that was not the case two years ago. Uh, But some some work is going to be uncomfortable, and and that's the value in it and the takeaway. The idea of the canon for me is like this super academic thing, 
right? That people talk about and in some ways wield as like powerful. Um, people, and, and people, I, people elevate these works still <laughs> by calling it the canon, right? So, so it, it makes it even more like farcical to me because it's this group of works that we all think are important. And let me let me come out and, and say it. I can't stand most of those works, right? Like, like if I never read another read or produced or worked on or sat through tech for another Chekhov, psh, <laughs> I'm good. And I'm sure I'm sure there's some someone listening who's like, oh my gosh, but but Chekhov, right? Yeah. Uh. So it's, I mean, it's the, it's Chekhov, it's Shakespeare, it's, it's what you, what you were forced to read and deal with in, in school, right? And I don't know, some white guy decided sure. to be that way. Sure, but shows, shows since then have continued be, to, to be made and, and there's, there's still more shows that are going to come out that we have yet to know about. And time moves on and new history is made like I remember a conversation that I was having a friend where we were saying like oh I think it's time like Wicked has entered the canon and that was just two arbitrary people having a backstage conversation being like I it's it's the show has been a long long enough that like okay it's going to be considered now a classical work soon uh no, so, I bet I bet my music theater faculty member would say no. <laughs> we have this we have this argument even within within faculty, right? Where like, what are the major the major works in musical theater? I don't know that Wicked would be on that list for for an academic, uh, driven musical theater person. But when did Hair enter the canon? Right? Because like I've done Hair a couple times. And I've also done like Fiddler on the Roof a couple times, right? And so I guess, I guess I, I, I go back a little bit to say I'm not a performer. And so I have a hard time empathizing uh, positively or negatively about what's important for music theater students to learn, but also what's uncomfortable and degrading and something that a student could and should refuse to be a part of. I think that's only one piece of this for me is, is not to downplay the performer's experience, but there's also the audience that's receiving whatever that content is. And at what point do we want to stop putting that content out and Absolutely. take that in? Absolutely, because that is the biggest representation of the organization to the public, right? So if, if you're gonna keep doing those works, that's right. That's the that's the face of the organization, especially in academia. But so is is doing a classical work a requirement? Is doing a work of the canon a requirement? I asked this very question in our last meeting. <laughs> and was told not officially i i feel like i would agree with that statement uh i don't know if everybody in your room agrees with it but uh at, at least i would agree that 
professionally speaking, if I hadn't done any Chekhov, any Shakespeare, any of those guys, uh, w- would I be less than what I have become now? Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I find it very difficult to believe that that would be the case. So the, the space that I am at with education and, and these ideas is like, okay, if the industry expects me to know Chekhov, but they don't expect me to know anything about any sort of African or Indian theater, but my program teaches West African dance. My program um, delves into Indian theater because of the faculty who's here. So I am graduating with those ideas embedded and I'm not graduating with Chekhov embedded, which isn't entirely true at UF, but I don't know who Chekhov is. Guess what? A quick Google search is gonna tell me who Chekhov is. A quick Google search is not gonna give me the history of West African dance. And I know because I've done a Google search on West African dance, there's nothing. So we have an opportunity in education to teach what isn't readily accessible. Well, is that the goal or is the goal to teach how to think, right? So you're never gonna be able to encapsulate all sorts of uh, all sorts of specific non-canon works, right? So uh, I don't know. I I I I see what you're saying. Um, I I can't stand Chekhov, uh, and, and I think there's room for lots of opportunities. But I also I I also think that challenging the canon goes hand in hand with the fact that so many programs are still training students to go into being a LORT designer or a LORT TD or whatever. And those jobs either don't exist anymore or don't pay what someone with a master's degree should be earning, right? And, and, and well, that's not entirely true from a design perspective. Let me just counter it, that. Not, because... not entirely true, but in many cases, right? Not, not like it was in the 90s. Well, it, it forces you into a freelance realm as a, as a designer, which is all there is as a designer for the 95% of people. But those rates are negotiated by the union. So I just don't want to the the union has negotiated this. yeah no you're at a hundred percent right um I, I i very much was thinking more from a tea carpenter fair. pop artisan costume shop manager fair kind, kind of, mm-hmm. of place um so and, and and i think that a lot of my former students and friends uh i know very few lord dds I know a lot more people in education and a lot more people working in various special event, you know, rigging, whatever, you know, those kinds of places. And and I will say that just because it's kind of topical based on an email I got earlier this evening, 
like I wish there was some version of like a blue man group kind of or some other kind of of immersive theatrical performance that that we could do as a collegiate department because I see huge value to the performers I see huge value to the designers and technicians and and everyone um so John is what you're saying that the at least in terms of design and and technology or design and production um the industries that students are going into have shifted potentially away from regional theater yeah from your Shakespeare's and your Chekhov's and your I don't know hair the musical whatever those those opportunities have shifted but the education has stayed rooted in the canon yeah that's exactly what I'm saying And, and I I would say that for every one email I get from a lore, from a, from a Canon-based organization, I get four emails from other types of organizations looking for rigging installers and, you know, not and looking for theater-trained people, but not to TD a Shakespeare, if that makes any sense. I actually think to sort of return a little bit, but also tie in your point, John, the representation or inclusion of problematic material on stage from a costume design perspective is actually a really great challenge for, for well, graduate students specifically. Um, how we choose to dress a character, how we stray from a stereotype of the dress of the character is it's a challenge. Um, and it's preparing the student to analyze and assess from a different angle, right? Instead of defaulting to the homeless person is dirty, right? What does an actual homeless person look like now? they're not necessarily dirty, spoiler alert, right? So how do we still represent homelessness? And I'm just picking that topic out of thin air. How do we represent to- homelessness on stage in, in a costume today in an authentic way that still communicates that the character is homeless without playing on the stereotype of like wearing rags and, and dirtiness? I think that's a great challenge for students. And those characters exist in, in certain um, pieces from the, from the canon, right? That they might not exist in, in other pieces, or they might. I want to hear more from Herman, because there's deep thought happening there. Absolutely. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm very much playing devil's advocate right now. And I think that I'm, I'm having difficulty in connecting the need to do classical works of any kind in any genre to professional world as in like making it appear as if it's a milestone that you need to come across so far out of hearing this conversation possibly the the best argument for uh doing a classical work is the fact that the student gets to do a, pe- a period piece 
and they get to practice that design and practice their craft at doing a period piece. But again, playing devil's advocate, make it a project, make it an in-class project. You don't necessarily have to do the show per se. Uh, you'll, so I'm going to more... push back on that though, from a costume standpoint, like a lot of choice happens in realizing the costume. Let me just say, I actually, <laughs> I actually don't care if we produce classical pieces. Well, I, I, I think I'm that. Just... And, and, and that gets me to my ultimate point of like, okay, so ditch the classical work. What, what's the problem? What, tell me, tell me why, what we would be missing. The, we, it's not it's not sorry it's not design tech students that would be missing something it's performance students who would be missing something i do think there are certain works in the canon uh, certain shakespeare specifically that you know tell these timeless stories um that still hold value um i, also I would agree that there would are agree. some that you know, are, are problematic and like enough, but um, I do think certain works in the canon do hold value, but should we be choosing those and perpetuating racism, for example? I don't think so. Or misogyny. This is actually- right. so again again it seems like there's far more cons to producing classical works than there are pros so then why bother there seems to be a modern day alternative to doing it i mean hell hamilton right now period if we're trying to do a challenging costume piece and whatnot you've got some choices period choices there that you can do and there are other modernly written works that take place in in the past the, uh, the, the challenge with hamilton like specifically, let's just say that we could get the rights at my organization, right? Which we can't, but besides the point, I think the, the challenge with that would be getting the right diversity in the cast, which our organization wouldn't have um, to be able to also do the performance as, as expected, as written, as... It, it do justice to the production right so uh well that yeah. seems to be a challenge to rise to absolutely to absolutely like... i i i mean you know for next semester right and so i think that um again it goes back to the performers which in a lot of programs are a major driving force of season selection when when we have a certain amount of performers that have been accepted into the program wanted to go to the program whatever and they need a certain amount of performance credits to graduate so that i think i think i'm letting the cat out of the bag like that's a major driving force for season planning in education um and and, and so many of my conversations in season selection are about feasibility as the technical director yeah again i don't feel like a good argument was presented in anything that you just said john like you just it, it's more of like step up to the challenges right if 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 there's more shows out there that are diverse then diversify the student body 
if you can't find the right show that is reflective of your current student body, let's say you're not as diverse as you want to be, then it seems like more research needs to be done, right? Like there's the, the, the research hasn't been expansive enough to, to find that right show, whatever it is. I, I agree um, with you. I, I, so, so like, as none, of, I, none of this, none of this seems to, uh, I'm not saying cut down the amount of performances, right? Like I'm not saying under deliver to your performance students, whatever it is that they've been promised, you can still deliver the same quantity. We're just talking about the show in which they'll be performing. I, I mean, I, I'm coming at this from a like, this is how it's going kind of place. But I agree with you that the answers aren't great. <laughs> okay. So, so we're, we're just accepting, I guess, going back to the original question of, 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 of that Eli asked, we're just accepting the classical work then. It just kind of is what it is because there's no good answer right now. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I, I, I think we can do better. And, and I think Eli's question was more about why are we, why are we making specific choices on the titles if they are problematic? And, and it's so it's so subjective as to what a problematic title is gonna be that there isn't a one size fits all answer. I don't wanna keep picking on musical theater, but like musical theater is just such a problem. Um, we did a piece this year at UF that has some problematic misogynistic content, but the piece is set in the early 1900s. So it's historically accurate, right? Um, so fine, we get we get through that that piece. And then one of the proposals for not next season, but the following season comes in and is worse in terms of its misogyny. And I just said to the committee, like, I think you can do that piece, but I don't think you can do that piece on the heels of the piece we just did, right? Because now suddenly, two out of three years, we're gonna have these wildly misogynistic musicals going on. These are the kinds of decisions that like we shouldn't be reduced to, AKA we'll, we'll be misogynistic one year and then next year we gotta lay off the misogyny for a few years and then we'll come back to misogyny, right? But at the same time, the vast majority of musicals out there have problematic content. It's just a scale of how problematic is this piece. We also had a, had a short conversation going through a number of musicals because we're changing the musical title next year at the last minute. And um, none of them were great. And then I started listing worse musicals, things like South Pacific, right? And suddenly our not great musicals sounded amazing in comparison to like South Pacific or Annie Get Your Gun. This is, the, this is the, the unfortunate reality, particularly of musical theater. I think plays are different 
I think there's a lot of playwrights and a lot of plays out there. But in terms of musical theater, it's much more narrow. Okay, so let me rephrase the question. Regardless of what the topic is, what is what is required for for you guys to be in those rooms and and no longer consider these shows? Have it be a quick like no, we we have to pass on that one, as opposed to is this one less than the other one or greater than the other one? It, it's organizational change. Everyone in the organization needs to be on board with it. And, and if that means, and if that means that our ticket sales aren't going to be good, and and the following season we need to do less scenery because we didn't make enough money in the box office or whatever, uh, the organization top down needs to be okay with that. Oh, yeah. Top down and sideways, right? Because the collaborators, the mu the music theater faculty members, the directors, like the organization as a whole needs to be on board with it. Uh, otherwise you're gonna have circular conversations for the entire season selection process. And I'm just coming out of a two year long circular conversation. John, if I ask you, Eli's short form question and summarize what you just said, when does a work be in a classic stop excusing its context, its content? Your answer is when the organization changes. No. No. Just asking. Yeah. It, it sounds like that's what it like what you just said. I, I think that I think that is the way to to make it happen, but I, hmm, I don't know. I'm tripping over my words because <laughs> you're making me think too hard. Um, I think it's a way, right? Not the only way, but if if an organization holistically gets on board with saying, regardless of, of how famous this show is, regardless of how important this is to the canon, organizationally, they say, we're not producing this work then that work isn't going to get produced by that organization, right? So, so that's a way, um, but I don't know that there's, we can expand that, right? Is it industry-wide? Is it ticket sales? When, when patrons stop coming to shows that have, have racist content, that's going to send a message to producers. Is that actually going to happen? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, there's nothing that makes people change quicker than like seeing a picket line or uh, a right. protest happening, right. you know? Yeah. Sure. And, and I'm, not, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with your answer. Uh, it's an interesting approach. What's interesting, if, if, if that was your answer, is that the answer to Eli's question actually has nothing to do with the work itself. It's the people that produce the work. Just, just an interesting thought process, you know? Um, well, the people who produce the work elevate that work and give that work a voice, give that work a face, give that work legs, give that work the historical context that this show has been produced X amount of times, right? Give, gives that one audience member 
the ability to in the future when they are up for producing a work to say oh i saw so-and-so's production of so-and-so and it was great there's all this racist stuff in it but they did a good job with it and i think we could do a good job with it so i think people will buy tickets to it or or i think there's value in my students learning about this or or whatever the the mission of the organization that's doing the work right can i throw a la another layer onto this Just no no please don't this, this a little so we had planned to do Rocky Horror next fall. And Rocky Horror has problematic content, but it was pitched by a student. Um, and, and that pitch was about the LGBTQ community and just community in general, right? It's this, you know, rock-esque, brings in a crowd, uh, celebratory vibe to the piece. So we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it in the committee that chose it. And then after the committee that chose it, faculty talked about it and talked about it and talked about it to try to start to develop an approach to the piece that would actually attempt to handle some of the problematic content, right? And from my perspective as a costume designer, to challenge the way in which the clothing added to the representation of these, these different roles. And it's not just LGBTQIA plus community issues, there's also consent issues in, in Rocky Horror. So we talked about using it as a way to educate about terminology, about consent culture, right? Because nobody or most people in America don't live in consent culture, even in 20 whatever year this is, 2021. Um, so how can we as an educational institution use this piece, recontextualize this piece, rework this piece through uh, presentation by performers, but also intense work by design and production to educate an audience? In trying to get a director for this piece, um, a potential director from our program expressed concern about the content of the piece and was asked to reach out to the campus LGBTQ center. So we had a meeting with the LGBTQ center, just a listening session, essentially. Um, and one of the things that all of the people on the committee were totally clueless to, because we have only come to UF within the last handful of years, was the history on the UF campus of the way in which UF has been welcoming or not welcoming of the LGBTQIA plus community. So the way that our very community would receive this piece versus our intention of the piece, we're not ever going to match up. So there's also a huge question in the intention of a season as to who the community is that's receiving it. And even though our intention was to use the piece to educate and to further the acceptance and inclusion of this community, this community itself was not gonna receive the piece in that way. So we're, we're no longer producing the piece because we listen to our community. So I think like, I agree with John that it's in the, it's in the people that hold the power 
but some of the people that hold the power also need to be the community that you're representing on the stage. I think it's so interesting that you used some uh, Ralph's words, especially intent, right? And, and you know, it, it it just comes back to the same, the same overall philosophy, right? You could have the best of intentions or, or amicable intentions or, or like hopefully good intentions, right? Anywhere on the spectrum, people don't go out and say, well, at least I hope people don't go out and say, today I'm going to hate someone, right? Or today I'm going to cause harm to someone. And, and the, people have like good intentions, I, I think, uh, generally, uh, but their actions and how their actions are received, not so great often. So. Well, and uh, we at, at in my department may be primed to either totally abandon the canon or treat the canon in a way that we can do the work to put these stories out there in a responsible way in an educational environment. But if we are putting the story of a community out there and we have not done work to build a relationship with that community, then we're not actually primed to do it at all. So is that, is that something ahead, that, is that something that's easily done? Like getting having that community, whoever that community is, uh, getting their voice in the room, or is that one of those things that's kind of like easier said than done type thing? I actually think at educational institutions it's very easy, which is why educational institutions are primed for this, right? Like, I. I, I mean, I didn't do the work to make this meeting happen with the LGBTQ center on campus, but I know that that LGBTQ center is like 500 yards from my office, right? So faculty just walked down there and started conversations as opposed to if you're a, a standalone theater having to like resource that in some way. Although one would hope that members of your community might be able to connect you um, to resources. But I think educational institutions have a lot of spaces built in towards inclusion and diversity. And those organizations can be easily reached out to. And now I would also say like, this was step one of what is probably a five year plus process before we would ever be able to produce Rocky Horror, right? We have certain things we absolutely have to do to build that relationship with that community before we could produce that piece and have it well received. If your audience, if you're, if you're a theater company in middle America somewhere, and so your audience is predominantly white, middle class, upper class. I have a question about whether you should, I guess this is a question of the world right now, actually, but whether you should keep feeding that audience what they want to see. This comes into ticket sales, Herman. Right. I keep doing Oklahoma because they keep coming, right? Even though maybe we should stop producing Oklahoma at some point and produce something that maybe pushes some other conversation forward. Um, do, do we have a, as artists, do we have a responsibility to push the conversation forward and care less about 
the audience's is viewpoint. I definitely think that as arts and culture uh, organizations, like it, it, it is certainly one of many responsibilities to educate. Um, and, and, you know, education could be educating about good things or, or bad things, you know, uh, whatever the topic is, but I think it's a responsibility to educate. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree agree with that statement of, of doing that now as far as you know feeding feeding the people what they want so to speak and and regardless of, of what that content is uh if if your true intent is to educate there's certainly a way that you can kind of play that in your favor you know like you you build up your audience and then you slip in that educational moment, um, uh, so you can you can work that both ways, uh, but you always have to keep. It becomes a, an internal organizational thing that you have to make sure that that is your mission, right? That you just kind of don't forget about your educational moment there. Uh -oh. So doesn't that go back to what John was saying? like the, the organization has to support this abandoning of the canon or shifting or whatever of the canon. right right and, and i wasn't i wasn't disagreeing with what he was saying at all uh i was just highlighting the fact that it was interesting that the answer to the question has nothing to do with the work it has to do with the organization uh and also hearing what's been said since then another possible answer if i were to ask when does a work being a classic stop excusing its content? It's when the community decides that we need to move past it. You know, as I heard you talk about your Rocky Horror example, as a and and everything that's been said, that like that's that's another potential answer. You know, uh, none none of these are right or wrong answer or the ultimate answer. I, I think one thing with education is depending on the organization, the mission is more about the education and the educational opportunities that come out of the shows and less about producing the shows where some organizations get into that, like serving more than one, uh, more than one mission is when you're an educational institution that also needs to make ticket sales, right? So at some point you need to make that sort of compromise with yourself to be able to produce the work and get the ticket sales, but also fulfilling the educational opportunities that are required by the student body that you have. Both, both from performance and design tech and every other Avenue. And it's hard, right? Like it's not easy. It is hard. I, I think though, the people that are in that room making these seasons, selecting these seasons, it matters who those people are and what their values are. But I also, you know, as I'm like, 
stewing on this question and especially Eli's like direct words. Can you read that again for me, Herman? Because I know you have it in front of you and I don't. When does a work being a classic stop excusing its content? I, I think it should be never, right? In my ideal world, in my idealistic mind, it should be never, right? Because, because it's a classic, that should not be an excuse for the content, right? It's like, it's the same thing. Just because, just because someone's an elected official, official doesn't excuse them being inappropriate, right? Just because, just because it's like our drunk uncle, he's, he, right? Like whatever, whatever that, like, oh, he's he's from a different time, right? Like those are all excuses for for the words and actions, and and I hope in an ideal world those excuses go away. Sure. The land of make-believe is amazing. You know, that's, that's great. Uh, I mean, isn't that what we do now? Make I think... <laughs> but isn't... I mean, so... <sighs> right? But you see what I'm saying, right? Like, uh, no, and I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think my I, my viewpoint of it is like... Okay, so a classic has problematic content. What is that content and what is the organization's ability to change that content or address that content in some way that is useful, whether it's educational or, or you know, whatever it might be. Contextual, um, right? Like as opposed to just, we're never doing any classics ever again. But right. if the organization isn't, able to change things like you can't really change the lyrics in um in musicals you can't change the words right um so if the whole thing is like riddled with racism maybe we don't do that if we can't change it if we can't shift the context if we can't use it in some way to educate and create the structure around that which is support systems um talkbacks invited guests, whatever support systems that would, would actually do the educating piece of that. Intimacy coordinators, right? Right. And then we don't do it. Well, I think, uh, I think we're at that time to start wrapping up here. And I, I think it's kind of, kind of good of, of how we left things, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's different answers. There isn't a finite answer. There isn't a, a one answer. So, uh, I think I think as I told Eli, uh, if you're listening out there, Eli, I think as I told you, you uh, certainly made us think a lot on this one. Uh, so it certainly made us put a lot of work into it. And uh, it'd be interesting to kind of hear what other conversations spin off of this. So uh, per usual, thank you to our listeners to, uh, for sticking around for this one, for uh, hearing us out. Uh, we certainly appreciate any feedback that you may have uh, to throw our way. Check us out on all of our social media. Uh, John, Jen, thank you for your time again tonight. And uh, we'll be staying tuned for the last call. Thank you and good night. Looking ahead to next episode, 
we have the executive director from the ERTAs. ERTAs are kind of like speed dating for graduate school. Happen every year? You really want to listen to this next episode.